Content warning. The following episode includes discussion of terrorism, disasters, and public health crises that have involved illness, injury, and death. Listener discretion is advised. In my final two years of undergrad at The Ohio State University, I was a resident advisor in the residence halls or dorms. My job essentially entailed being a resource to residents, creating and implementing floor-wide and hall-wide programming, mediating the drafting and signing of roommate contracts, mediating disputes between residents, and enforcing residence hall rules and regulations. To be honest, I wasn't exactly great at being an RA, I was pretty terrible at it year one due to a combination of evangelical zeal and crippling social anxiety. But I did improve the second year on the job, having learned lessons from the first year. Now, each school year, RAs would arrive on campus before everyone else, move in and begin team bonding and training. This would be two weeks of wall-to-wall, sun-up to sundown training sessions, both for the entire campus of RAs which was a lot given how huge Ohio State is, and as our smaller collective of RA teams within our individual residence halls or residence hall building groups. So for example, I was assigned to Patterson Hall, but in year one, we were grouped with two other buildings, Bradley Hall and Siebert Hall. So the RAs for the three buildings were all one team, and our team was led by one hall director and two assistants. These icebreakers and training sessions were a great way to bond with each other and prepare for the onslaught of students arriving to campus soon. One bright Tuesday morning, I woke up, got ready, and went downstairs to the Patterson lobby to wait on the rest of the team. All of us from the three buildings were meeting there to walk over to a classroom building at another part of campus to attend a training session with all the other RA teams on campus. Everyone who already made it downstairs had their eyes glued to the big screen TV in the lobby. And on the TV was one of these morning shows. I think it was Good Morning America. But instead of their normal segments, where they're talking about some movie that just came out, or a story about a revolutionary scientific cure for aging, there was a skyscraper on fire, with lots of smoke billowing out. And as I continued watching, it wasn't just any fire. It was one of the towers of the World Trade Center, and this was happening because a plane flown into it. One of my colleagues, we'll call him Nate, he was a poli-sci major like me. He was saying, I think it's terrorism. I wasn't so sure. I mean, it was New York City, and it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility, at least in my mind, that a random plane simply lost control and hit the North Tower. But then, on live television, another airplane came into view and crashed into the South Tower. At that moment, Nate said, this is terrorism. And he was right. We were watching the September 11th attacks live, and it was surreal. Shortly after this happened, everyone was in the lobby, and we all walked over to the classroom building, stunned at what we just saw. As soon as we all arrived in the classroom, we were told that the September 11th attacks not only encompassed the World Trade Center, but also the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. At this point, 
Flight 93 that crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania was not announced yet. All sessions for the day were canceled in the wake of this unfolding terrorist event. Walking back to the dorms, fear and uncertainty were in the air. I remember trying to get a hold of my family back at home in Michigan, making sure they were okay, wanting to find out if they heard from relatives in the D.C. area, concerned that they could have been involved in the Pentagon attack. They weren't. And then once I finally heard from them, spending the rest of the day in front of the TV, watching the aftermath and not knowing what was going to happen next. When it comes to incidents that come with death and destruction, when we're living through them, there's this feeling of uncertainty. What will the next few minutes, hours, days bring? Today, it's not a terrorist attack we're facing, but an incident of a different type. Instead of terrorism, it's a foe we can't see. It threatens our lives, but not in one shot, but over a comparatively long period of time. It's the kind of threat that feels like something out of a sci-fi movie or a dystopian novel. It doesn't feel real, but unfortunately, it's very, very real. The coronavirus, or COVID-19 pandemic, has affected many countries and regions around the world, including here in the United States. COVID-19 is a virus no one has an immunity for, which has been compared to the seasonal flu, but is much more contagious, and complications can be much more severe and more deadly. Our way of life has changed so much that just a month ago feels like the before time. But even though we might need to be distant from each other physically, we can only get through this challenge together. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide and it's not always polite. In this episode, I will discuss the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19. Coronavirus is the virus itself. COVID-19 is the illness that is caused by the virus, similar to the difference between HIV and AIDS. But I may use these terms interchangeably. Please know that I am not a doctor or medical expert, and anything I say does not constitute medical advice because I am not a medical expert, and because this is a currently unfolding worldwide public health event, which will have likely progressed further between the time I record this and the time the episode is released, I will not be providing a lot of scientific and medical details regarding COVID-19. I will focus more on the social and political aspects of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, including public health and the economy, because that is what I feel more qualified to speak on. Please defer to the updated information provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, as well as medical experts and your own primary care physician. If you would like accurate details about the virus itself and up-to-date advice as to how to keep you and your loved ones healthy and what to do if you suspect you might be infected. As of Monday, March 23rd, in the United States, more than 43,000 people have confirmed positive 
on tests for the novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, while 553 people have died. About half of all confirmed cases are in New York State, and high numbers are also found in New Jersey, Washington State, and California. These are states with over 1,000 confirmed cases and were some of the first places that showed signs of infection. But there are confirmed cases in every state in the union, and these numbers are rising. The official numbers may continue to rise due to both the highly contagious nature of the virus and the ramping up of testing, but it is believed by medical experts that the true numbers are much, much higher. Worldwide, as of Monday, over 378,000 people have been officially diagnosed, while 16,510 people have died. The public is told to take precautions to lower the spread, and state and local governments have taken a patchwork of actions to cut down on transmission, up to and including closing non-essential businesses and keeping people at home. So, how did we get here? When Donald Trump first took office as President of the United States in 2017, his administration sought to pare down the size and scale of the federal government, including appointing non-experts to cabinet posts and other high-level positions, including installing individuals opposed to the goals of the departments they were assigned to lead, such as placing Betsy DeVos, a charter school's advocate with no background in public education, in the role of Secretary of Education. It also meant ousting actual experts and disbanding government agencies and departments the administration viewed as non-essential. In May 2018, then-National Security Advisor John Bolton disbanded the Global Health Security Team responsible for the U.S. response to a possible pandemic or bioterrorism attack. The dissolution of this team also led to the departure of that team's leader, National Security Council member Rear Admiral Timothy Ziemer. According to a Washington Post article from that time, experts were warning that global health security and pandemic preparedness required government-wide responses, and a high-ranking official dedicates specifically to this role. The loss of this team and its head meant that the U.S. would be extremely unprepared should a bioterrorist threat or pandemic arise. Fast forward to late 2019. In the city of Wuhan in central China, dozens of people came down with a mysterious respiratory illness that led to high fever, pneumonia, and lung lesions. The first case was discovered in October of last year by Dr. Li Wenyang, who tried to sound the public alarm about the novel coronavirus, but the Chinese government reprimanded him and forced him to recant his warning, and Dr. Li later died of the virus. Many of the initial infections appeared to trace back from a local seafood market that sold exotic animals in addition to seafood. The virus was later identified as a novel coronavirus, meaning a coronavirus that is newly developed that may have jumped from affecting animals to humans. Coronaviruses are a class of viruses named for the halo or crown that can be seen surrounding the individual pathogens under a microscope. Colds are coronaviruses. So are viruses that caused pandemics earlier in the century, such as SARS and MERS. 
is not quite as deadly as SARS or MERS, though COVID-19 is much more contagious than those viruses or even the common cold. The novel coronavirus, which has the scientific name of SARS-CoV-2, has been compared to the seasonal flu because some symptoms of the coronavirus, such as fever, dry cough, fatigue, and shortness of breath, overlap with flu. But COVID-19 has a much higher complications and death rate than the seasonal flu. About 1-2% to of flu sufferers are hospitalized and 0.1% die. But 20% of those who contract COVID-19 require hospitalization and about 1-3% to die, which is an exponentially higher death rate. Also, the flu, unlike COVID-19, has a vaccine. While different strains of the flu develop each year, the flu vaccine does provide some protection. And because the flu appears in some form each year, we have a natural immunity to it that we don't have for COVID-19. There is no known effective treatment or cure for COVID-19. So back to the timeline. In January, China publicly reported its first COVID-19 death. And not long after, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, and the United States had identified their first confirmed cases. The first case in the U.S. was identified in the state of Washington, a man in his 30s who had recently returned from a trip to Wuhan, China. Meanwhile, China had begun efforts to contain the virus and treat the sick. But by this point, it was too little, too late. It was already spreading rapidly worldwide. Near the end of January, new coronavirus cases had spread to Hong Kong and Taiwan, India and the Philippines, as well as Italy, Russia, Spain, Sweden, and the UK reported their first cases at the end of the month. In the US, the Trump administration took the step of restricting entry of foreign nationals who traveled to China in the past 14 days. But this ban did not apply to US citizens, their immediate family members, or permanent residents. While Donald Trump said in a February 2nd interview that this measure, quote, pretty much shut it down coming in from China, end quote. Many of the entry points for the virus had been U.S. citizens who had traveled abroad and returned to the States, making this step largely ineffective. In early February, the Diamond Princess, a British registered cruise ship owned by Carnival Corporation under the Princess Cruises brand, was placed in quarantine due to an outbreak of the virus on board. 3,700 passengers and crew were held in quarantine. After nearly a month in quarantine, the ship was evacuated March 1st. There were 712 confirmed cases among passengers, with nine deaths, five of which happened while still on board. Some of these confirmed cases were later discovered when passengers had disembarked and had made it to their home countries, including the U.S. and Canada. These were further points of entry for COVID-19. Also, in early February, Australia, Canada, Germany, Singapore, the United Arab Emirates, and Vietnam saw their first confirmed cases of coronavirus, and the numbers continue to escalate in other locations where cases have already been discovered, such as Japan and the U.S. Around this time, the first confirmed COVID-19 death outside of China occurred in the Philippines. Meanwhile, virus deaths inside of China grew exponentially. On February 9th, 
the World Health Organization sent an investigative team to China. On February 14th, France announced their first coronavirus death. This would be the first death from COVID-19 announced in Europe. On the same day, Egypt reported their first confirmed case, the first diagnosed on the continent of Africa. Over the course of February, confirmed cases and deaths continued to rise, and additional countries began reporting infections, including Iran, Iraq, Israel, Kuwait, Bahrain, Oman, and Afghanistan. Also, cases continued to spread throughout Europe and South Asia and started to hit Latin America, reaching Brazil and Nigeria in Sub-Saharan Africa. At this point, Italy was fast becoming a hotspot for coronavirus infections, as well as Iran, with particularly high rates of confirmed coronavirus cases and deaths. In that same month, Donald Trump sought to downplay, at least publicly, the threat of the virus, claiming in press conferences over the next few weeks that the warmer weather would kill off the virus, which has not been proven with the novel coronavirus, and that the first 15 confirmed coronavirus cases would only decrease, quote, close to zero, end quote, which we all now know this is not the case. He'd also quipped during a Black History Month reception on February 27th that perhaps the coronavirus could, quote, miraculously disappear, end quote. On February 24th, the Trump administration asked Congress to allocate $1.25 billion in new emergency funds to increase its preparedness for the coronavirus. The CDC warned at the time that there would almost certainly be an outbreak in the United States, and many experts warned that the U.S. was not prepared for what was to come, even with this additional funding. But just a few days later, on February 28th, Donald Trump held a campaign rally in South Carolina where he said this regarding the criticism his administration received regarding the response. Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. They're politicizing it. We did one of the great jobs, you say, House President Trump doing. They go, oh, not good, not good. They have no clue. They don't have any clue. They can't even count their votes in Iowa. They can't even count. No, they can't. They can't count their votes. One of my people came up to me and said, Mr. President, they tried to beat you on Russia, Russia, Russia. That didn't work out too well. They couldn't do it. They tried the impeachment hoax. That was on a perfect conversation. They tried anything. They tried it over and over. They've been doing it since you got in. It's all turning. They lost. It's all turning. Think of it. Think of it. And this is their new hoax. But, you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're 15 people in this massive country. And because of the fact that we went early, we went early, we could have had a lot more than that. We're doing great. Our country is doing so great. On one hand, unlike the way he has been quoted by some pundits, he did not specifically call coronavirus a hoax. But by stating that there were only 15 cases at that point, while there were actually 57, and that being an indicator that his administration was responding adequately, he was indeed downplaying the severity of the issue. 
He was also using the low numbers to claim victory over the virus. But those low numbers weren't necessarily an indication that there were only 15 or even 57 cases at that point. It was undoubtedly due to a lack of coronavirus testing. At around this time, a small German company had ramped up production on coronavirus test kits, and by the end of February had been able to produce and ship more than 1.4 million tests to the World Health Organization. These tests would likely have been available to the United States if they had requested them. But that's not what happened. Like what is often the case during disease outbreaks, countries attempt to create their own tests. And the U.S. is one of those countries. But during the period between mid-January and the end of February, 160,000 tests were produced, most of which were unusable. And only 4,000 were administered. Slow approvals by the Food and Drug Administration for private companies to produce a test, an unexplained test manufacturing problem at the CDC, and an unwillingness to use the WHO tests even as a backup appear to be the reasons why the U.S. fell behind in testing and has yet to catch up. In March, the pandemic has continued to take its toll worldwide. Italy in particular experienced a confirmed case and death rate that doubled daily. These rates are just now, this week, starting to slow down. In the countries hard hit by the pandemic, hospitals began to reach capacity, provisional space has needed to be built, and the supplies of personal protective equipment, or PPE, such as masks and gloves, are in short supply, as well as ventilators. But for weeks, the Trump administration hasn't taken it seriously. On March 11th, the WHO officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic, meaning that it has become widespread in more than one region of the globe. On the same day, Trump ordered another travel ban, this time keeping out people from Europe, with the exception of the UK, which he later added to his ban. Two days later, on March 13th, after weeks of minimizing the effects of the virus on the public here in the United States, Donald Trump officially declared a national emergency. At this point, within the United States, the number had risen from just 57 confirmed cases back when Trump called outcry by Democrats over the virus a hoax, to only two weeks later, 2,100 people officially diagnosed with coronavirus and 48 people dead. And remember, right now, less than two weeks after Trump's emergency declaration, 43,000 people and counting are confirmed infected with COVID-19 in the United States, and 553 people have lost their lives. And the numbers are still rising. On Monday, March 23rd, Surgeon General Jerome Adams warned the American public regarding the novel coronavirus, quote, I want America to understand this week. It's going to get bad, end quote. A number of experts, including doctors and other health professionals on the front lines of the pandemic, agree that the coronavirus pandemic is getting worse. In the United States, some projections indicate that over time, more than half the U.S. population will be infected with COVID-19, with well over a million deaths. I don't say this to scare you, but this is what we could be looking at. Most of us may get this virus. 
and either be a carrier or fall ill. And if it hasn't happened already, someone we know may die from this. The elderly and immunocompromised are most at risk of serious illness and death, but no one is immune. Young people, including the healthy, have needed hospitalization, including being put on ventilators, and some have even died. But even if you don't have symptoms or have mild symptoms, the fact that this is so contagious can mean that we can unknowingly spread coronavirus to others, including those who may face serious illness or death if they contract it. The fact that coronavirus testing is still not widespread and there are guidelines people must meet in order to be tested means that we don't know who is infected and who isn't. And because of that, it has necessitated drastic actions that have affected our daily lives profoundly. To slow the virus's spread, medical experts are encouraging people to stay at least six feet away from each other, referred to as social distancing. Refrain from gatherings outside our households. Keep from touching our faces. Wash your hands thoroughly with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. And be sure to sterilize surfaces around us. Some state governments have done their part by closing certain businesses or allowing them to stay open under strict parameters, canceling large gatherings, and even shelter-in-place orders. The idea is to flatten the curve, keep the rate of infection slow, so that medical facilities can better manage the health of patients that come in, both those with COVID-19 and patients with other illnesses and injuries. Remember, people still get sick with the normal range of diseases and get injured while this pandemic is happening. Some of these state government orders, particularly the restrictions on non-essential businesses in some states, the excessive rates of unemployment and losses by the gig economy due to these restrictions and virus fears, as well as uncertainty felt by stock market investors, has led to the economy that Donald Trump gave himself so much credit for taking a nosedive. Unfortunately, this hurts 401k and other retirement investments that some Americans are relying on for their futures. And more immediately, this can mean an additional loss of jobs and a continued rise in unemployment. Recently, Trump has discussed the possibility of lifting pandemic precautions such as stay-at-home orders and business closures to try to bring back the economy, even though the trade-off is that this could spike the pandemic further and make it more difficult for hospitals and medical professionals to properly respond to the crisis and treat patients. Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick put it more starkly. Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren. And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. Um, and that doesn't make me noble or brave or anything like that. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country, like me, I have six grandchildren, that what we all care about and what we love more than anything are those children. And I want to, you know, live smart and, uh, and, and see through this, but I don't want the whole country to be sacrificed. Uh, and I, and that's what I see. I've talked to hundreds of people, Tucker, and just in the last week and uh, making calls all the time. And, and everyone says pretty much the same thing. 
that we can't lose our whole country. We, we're having an economic collapse. I'm also a small businessman. I understand it. And I talk with business people all the time, Tucker. And, and I'm so, my, I'm just, my heart is lifted tonight by what I heard the president say, because we can do more than, you know, one thing at a time. We can do two things. So, you know, my message is that, um, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Remember when the GOP said they were against death panels? I remember. Let's sacrifice the elderly, not to save the lives of the young, but to maybe save the economy for them. Really? Want to do something useful when it comes to young people in the economy? Why not just forgive all federal student loans? Then we wouldn't have to kill grandpa. But no, that would be too easy. So this is where we are. Much like September 11th, and perhaps even more so, COVID-19 may change our government and society in a profound way. Honestly, even once the coronavirus has run its course, I can't picture life going back to the way it was if things continue to play out the way they have. At least for now, the coronavirus is the great equalizer. Because it is highly contagious and can spread in groups of people, even in passing, this means that getting this isn't based on whether you're rich or poor, though if we want to look at how this came to the U.S., this was likely brought to the U.S. from people who traveled overseas, who are disproportionately well-off financially. Business executives traveling abroad to meet with international investors and tour outsourced factories. Politicians and diplomats meeting with heads of state and heads of government, as well as other diplomats. Individuals and families taking a trip to Asia and Europe or going on a cruise for vacation. Does it mean it's their fault for traveling? Oh no, not at all. But here's the point I'm making. Diseases that were in the news in our recent past such as HIV in the 1980s, were portrayed as only affecting those who were already looked down upon by society. In the case of HIV, it first appeared in gay men, intravenous drug users, and Haitian immigrants. At least as far as scientists knew at the time, there were cases that predate the first publicized cases in 1981, but that wasn't known until much, much later. Politicians such as Ronald Reagan turned a blind eye to the suffering and deaths of many Americans because of who it was initially affecting the most, people who he and much of society at the time were prejudiced against. But COVID-19 is different. It doesn't respect class divides. It has no regard for race or ethnicity. It is more likely to affect the old and those already battling other disorders than those who are young but the young and healthy are not spared. Even the powerful have something to fear. Government officials in many countries, as well as their families, have tested positive, and it can be deadly. As a dozen Iranian politicians and officials have died of COVID-19. In the U.S., the virus has hit Congress and a staffer working for Vice President Mike Pence. Tom Hanks and Kevin Durant have it. And even if every politician, every celebrity, and all athletes had their own ventilators, that would not guarantee they would stay alive should they fall gravely ill from the virus. This has the potential of destabilizing everything. The future is so wide open right now, 
This cannot be understated. COVID-19 is going to be a turning point for many countries, especially each country affected heavily by it. Here in the U.S., there are, of course, a bunch of possible futures. But right now, I can imagine these potential futures falling into three categories. And these are not mutually exclusive. These could overlap. One possibility is that this pandemic could lead to an acceleration of white nationalism in the United States. The news of the coronavirus coming from Wuhan, China, has led to a rise in xenophobic and racist incidents directed at Asians and Asian Americans here in the U.S. Some people are blaming them for spreading coronavirus due to their race or ethnic background. The harassment and violence against people of Asian descent has been exacerbated by the inflammatory rhetoric of Donald Trump. Recently, after the weeks of pretending coronavirus was overblown, Trump had taken to calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus, even scratching out the name coronavirus in his notes specifically in favor of this incendiary term. While his advocates attempt to give Trump plausible deniability by stating that this is simply naming the virus after where it came from, the WHO had announced the official name as COVID-19, specifically noting that we should stray away from monikers with geographic or ethnic names. This seems to be yet another way that Donald Trump is trying to distance himself from taking any responsibility for the magnitude of the virus's effects in the United States. No, I don't take responsibility at all. And despite the claims of Senator and presidential lapdog Marco Rubio, as well as other Republican politicians, that the naming issue is a distraction, this is not just a matter of semantics or virtue signaling. This messaging has real consequences, including the ramp-up of anti-Asian hate crimes that are even landing people in the hospital. Also, some Americans are confused about what Trump is even talking about, since mainstream media outlets and most other public officials have stuck with the official names for the virus and the condition it causes since the WHO made their announcement. This could get a whole lot worse. In my research, I haven't seen any murders related to this yet, and I truly hope that doesn't happen. But race riots that have included the murders of people of color aren't outside the realm of possibility. And when I say that, I don't mean urban unrest like the 1967 Detroit riots, the 1992 LA riots, or the 2001 Cincinnati riots. I'm talking about race riots where white mobs went into segregated neighborhoods where people of color lived and violently attacked and killed them, such as the Zoot Suit Riots of 1943 and the Detroit Riots that occurred the same year, as well as other race riots that were common during the Great Depression and World War II. The economy and racial and ethnic tensions led to these riots where many people were killed, mostly people of color. Those types of conditions leading to race riots mirror what we may be looking at in the next several months or years. And considering Charlottesville in 2017, the El Paso mass shooting last year, and other incidents of white supremacist terror that have increased since Trump's presidency, this pandemic and the problems resulting from it could lead to a greater appeal of white nationalism for disaffected young white teens and adults, leading to white supremacist radicalization and additional ratcheting up of white supremacist terror. Another possible future is that the gulf between the 1% and the rest of us may become a lot wider. 
If you're into movies, think Demolition Man, the 90s sci-fi action movie with Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. Everything is corporate. The wealthy live in a clean, antiseptic environment where physical touch is limited. The masses are underground, dirty, and unseen. Some variation of this scenario may especially come into play if a vaccine, cure, or treatment is discovered in the midst of this pandemic. Now, this is unlikely as an approved vaccine or treatment may be a year or more out from now, and the pandemic may be over by then. But this is not outside the realm of possibility. As it is, Donald Trump and other Republicans are encouraging a quick end to the social distancing, business closures, and other actions taken to flatten the curve for the sake of the economy getting back on track. And as it is, due to the profit motive in U.S. healthcare and pharmaceuticals, access to quality healthcare and needed medications is largely dictated by economics. So this future is definitely a possibility. Now, the last possible future I want to talk about is a more hopeful one. On the other side of this, we could be walking into a future where our government and society will have become significantly more progressive in a short period of time. And this would be for two reasons. We are learning the hard way that a key purpose of government is to take care of its citizens. President Ronald Reagan once said, quote, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, end quote. In this mantra of government as being this horrible, intrusive entity, not because of who is in charge, but because it is an impressive force in and of itself, set apart from the people instead of for the people by the people, fueled the conservative revolution of the 1980s. And that led to the degradation of the U.S. government, as the Republican Party, aided by corporatist, third-way Democrats, sought to make government as ineffectual as possible under the guise of it being made small. And making the government so ineffective and not geared towards the health and welfare of its citizens has long-term devastating consequences. More widespread testing has led to rates of confirmed coronavirus cases increasing in this country. But part of that rise is real. Serious COVID-19 cases have started to overwhelm hospitals and other medical facilities in the United States, similar to what happened in Italy. The demographics in the U.S. skew younger than in Italy, and Americans are less likely to smoke than Italians. Though, like the U.S., Italy delayed in implementing social distancing and other safety precautions. But, unlike South Korea, Germany, and other countries that have been able to so far flatten the curve, the United States doesn't have universal health care. We have a few public programs, such as Medicaid for individual and families making under a certain amount a year, Medicare for people 65 and older, as well as younger people under specific circumstances, and care through the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs for eligible military veterans and their families. But most of us are at the mercy of either employers or the Affordable Care Act exchanges. And Trump's regime has even been trying to chip away at that. As of 2018, 27 and a half million people were without insurance. And those of us with insurance have varied levels of coverage and still may need to pay premiums, co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance. The average cost of treatment for COVID-19 
according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, depends on how serious the case, even with insurance. For the insured, the average cost of care without any comorbidities, other chronic conditions that might make treatment more difficult, such as high blood pressure or diabetes, is $9,700. That is with insurance. Treatment with comorbidities or with complications averages nearly $14,000. With major complications and comorbidities, the cost can be upwards of $20,000. Again, with healthcare coverage. If you get this virus and you're one of the 27.5 million uninsured Americans, all bets are off. Time recently reported the case of a woman who was uninsured due to an impending move and undergoing outpatient cancer treatment. She was diagnosed with coronavirus, but was not kept at the hospital and was allowed to quarantine at home. Her bill, nearly $35,000. Such a high financial cost means that some Americans may experience symptoms, but may forego testing and treatment. Even with the federal government pledging to cover the cost of coronavirus testing, the fear of being quarantined, or worse yet, hospitalized and on a ventilator may keep people away from seeking medical treatment. As it is, many middle and lower income Americans put off treatment of ailments because of the fear of financial hardship or ruin. This makes no sense in a post-industrialized Western nation, as most comparable nations have universal health care. This hurdle in people seeking care for the virus, along with the fact that we were slow to ramp up testing, means that it will be extremely difficult to flatten the curve and exponentially more people will die. As we continue to see the confirmed case and death toll rise, many Americans, regardless of ideology, are begging the government, the government that got stripped of so much of its capacity by not only Donald Trump, but administrations going back to the 1980s, that government for help. Help to save both their lives and their livelihoods. You don't need the government until you do. The push for progressive reforms is not only coming from buyer's remorse after decades of living the Reagan vision of a shrinking government. It's coming from seeing how extenuating circumstances, in this case, a pandemic that can kill, what we'd always heard were impossibilities were all of a sudden possible. Journalist Dan Coyce wrote an article recently for Slate entitled, America is a Sham, about how so many of the seemingly immutable rules and regulations that we are required to abide by in life have been temporarily set aside in the face of the growing coronavirus pandemic. Coyce points to examples of these policies and how these are being set aside due to the crisis. Examples include the moratorium on police involvement in evictions, suspects in minor offenses having bail waived and being let out of jail, and utility shutoffs being postponed in a number of locales across the country. And it gets into the private sector too. Can't pay your home loan and about to be foreclosed on? Rest easy. Broadband overages and internet throttling? Gone. Your job says it's impossible to give you paid sick leave? Well, you have it now. Hoist says, quote, in every single one of these cases, it's not just that most of these practices are accepted as standard, it's that they are a way to punish people, to make lives more difficult, or to make sure that money keeps flowing upward. Up until now, activists and customers have been meant to believe that the powers that be could never change these policies, 
it would be too expensive, or too unwieldy, or it would simply upset the way things are done. But now, faced suddenly with an environment in which we're all supposed to at least appear to be focused on a common good, the rulemakers have decided it's okay to suspend them. It's a crisis, after all. Everyone's got to do their part." End quote. Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote a response article. Bunch is not fond of the title, America is a Sham, but agrees with the main premise of the article. He notes that many of these arbitrary rules disproportionately harm the poor and middle class and hopes that the temporary lifting of many of these rules due to the coronavirus pandemic would give society the clarity to reconsider these rules long term. He writes, quote, The Dan Coyce article is simply headlined, America is a sham. That's a harsh judgment, and in a moment when citizens are seeking ways to come together and promote unity, it may not be the message that some folks want to hear. But the question raised by the piece is a serious one. If a kinder, gentler America is really possible, in a moment of clarity, when we can blame the struggles of marginalized people on outside forces, then can we keep that clarity and look at ways to be less draconian whenever this crisis has finally passed?" End quote. Right now, we're having serious conversations about progressive reforms that only a couple weeks ago appeared to be pipe dreams. Universal basic income, bail reform, eliminating student loan debt, Medicare for all. And it's not just conversations that are the domain of democratic socialists or long-shot democratic presidential candidates. Even moderates and conservatives are starting to discuss these as real possibilities due to the pandemic. And while some may view, say, stimulus checks to individual Americans or eliminating bail for nonviolent suspects as temporary measures to help Americans endure the crisis, once we see these measures can be taken and can be taken relatively quickly in many cases, the next question is, why can't we do this under normal circumstances? Why can't this be our reality? Now that we know what's possible, there is no going back. Thank you very much for listening to Potstar Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstarpodcast.com download and you'll see the links. Subscribing is completely free, and you can get new episodes once they come out, so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars on the app of your choice and leave a review. And I tweet often, so follow me on Twitter at PotStirrerCast. Be safe and be well. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future, because freedom is not free. Freedom is not free.